Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast episode 26, where today we are going to be talking about skull fractures. So we're starting the neurologic uh, content for the CCRN review. Welcome to all of you that are new and have not attended or listened to a podcast previously. My name is Kay Hoppy, and I have been a critical care nurse for 38 years prior to uh, leaving the ICU and taking an academic position at a local university. So I welcome all of you that are new, and I welcome back all of you that have listened to previous podcasts. I really appreciate your dedication and listening to uh, my content. So some announcements for today. The first one is that my CCRN online program is available for purchase. You can head on over to my website, which is khoppypresents.com. There's a link in the description below as well, so that you can just hit the link and uh, go right there. And my um, CCRN review has 24-7 lifetime access. So when you compare my program to other CCRN online programs, please take into consideration that my program is lifetime access. So well after you've completed and passed your CCRN, you still have the content. There are also 30 hours of continuing education that um, are awarded to you in the form of a certificate upon course completion and submission of an evaluation. I also do have the course cost $299 and I do have a payment plan of $150 for two consecutive months if that makes it easier on your budget. I also have my CCRN test, the mock exam, available as a single purchase and that is the test only portion of my CCRN online. So they're the same exam. And this is just for $25. And once again, you can hit the link below, head over to my website, and you're able to purchase the test and get underway. The, the benefit of taking a mock exam is that you can test your readiness for taking the CCRN. And it also helps you to identify learning need areas that you need to delve into a bit more deeply before taking the exam. So that's really all I have in the way of announcements. So let's get into our neuro content 
And today we're going to start out by talking about skull fractures. So, you know, when you think about skull fractures, what are the most likely causes for skull fractures? Well, you know, we have a trauma of some sort. It might be a motor vehicle accident. It might be a fall. It could be a sports related or industrial related injury. And really our skull fractures fall into three groups, a linear skull fracture, depressed skull fracture, or a basilar skull fracture. While I'm going to spend just a few minutes on each one of those, we're going to go over it along with collaborative management. The one that you are most likely to get on either the CCRN or the PCCN exam is the basilar skull fracture. So let's start out with linear. Linear, line, right? That's what comes to mind when you think of the term linear. So here we have just one line, linear fracture with no displacement of bone. And that's about 80% of skull fractures. Now, depending upon the location of this linear skull fracture, the patient may indeed wind up with an epidural hematoma, especially if that linear skull fracture is located on near or around the temporal area. In the temporal area, you have the middle meningeal artery, which is kind of a sitting duck for uh, laceration. So when you have a hit upside the head, for example, you can have laceration of that middle meningeal artery. And now you have a person that has an epidural bleed and actually epidural and other types of hematomas are going to be covered in podcast episode 27, which will be coming up next. So now you have, if you have a linear skull fracture, that is in the temporal area, and you have laceration of that middle meningeal artery, now you're going to have an epidural hematoma and a patient that needs to have surgical evacuation of that hematoma immediately, or they will wind up herniating and dying. Now compare that with the standard linear skull fracture where there is no laceration of any kind of artery, uh, no hematoma to go along with it. Now, again, what we do with patients like this really depends upon patient presentation. A lot of times it's, you know, watch and wait, see if the patient has any neurologic decline, uh, the p- patient even may or may not be admitted depending upon the severity of this linear skull fracture, the location, as well as any neurologic compromise that is present when the patient comes in. Now let's compare that with a depressed skull fracture. A depressed skull fracture is one in which there is a depression of the outer table of the skull that may actually result in brain laceration or hematoma or direct communication actually between the environment and the brain matter itself, a depressed skull fracture. So you can just imagine that if we have a laceration and a depressed skull fracture and direct communication between environment and brain matter, certainly the patient is set up for infection that goes without saying. However, looking at it from a different standpoint, 
sometimes it's the depression that actually will help the patient to survive. Because think about it for a second. You have this brain inside this box. Obviously the box is the the skull, the cranium, right? So we have a brain inside a non-distensible box. And so if you have a head injury and the brain swells, there's nowhere to go as swelling increases. There's nowhere to go but exiting out the foramen magnum. And we have a, a name for that, right? We call that herniation. However, with a depressed skull fracture, the depression may allow for transmission of some of that high pressure out of the head, actually preventing herniation. So really it was the depressed skull fracture that really prevented the patient from herniating and dying on the scene. Then last but not least, we have a basilar skull fracture, and that's uh, involving the base of the skull. And when you take a look at the base of the skull, you basically have three invaginations at the base of the skull. You have, and by the way, these invaginations are called fossa. We have the anterior fossa, of course, that faces forward, the middle fossa, which is where, you know, obviously the middle where the ears are. And then we have the posterior fossa, which is in the back of the head. So we have some specific signs and symptoms that correlate with each type of fossa fracture. Now, when somebody has a basilar skull fracture, this is the person that we're going to admit and watch and monitor for signs and symptoms of increasing intracranial pressure. This isn't somebody that we're going to load up on a gurney and take to the OR. It's somebody, somebody that we are going to watch and monitor. So let's go ahead and talk about some of our assessment of a head injured patient. And then we're going to delve a little bit more deeply, particularly into basilar skull fracture, because that's the one that you are most likely to get on your exam. First of all, the Glasgow Coma Scale score, that's the big one, right? That's the one that we use to determine neurologic outcome. It's a quick down and dirty way of quickly assessing the patient to determine what their prognosis neurologically is. So when we look at the scoring system, we know that the scoring system is from 3 to 15, Nobody can have a zero GCS, okay? The lowest number you can get for each of three categories is one. That's it. That's the lowest number you can get on each of three categories. Therefore, the lowest number of the GCS is three. The highest number is 15. Now, let's talk about what the GCS looks at. First of all, it assesses eye-opening, so does the patient open their eyes spontaneously? They get a four. If they open their eyes to speech, they get a three. To pain, they get a two. And if they don't open their eyes at all, they get a one for no response. Then we have best verbal response. So the best verbal response, they're going to get a five if they are oriented to time, person, and place. A four if they're confused 
a three if they use inappropriate words, and I'll illustrate that in just a second, a two for incomprehensible sounds, and a one for no response at all. Now, what is the difference between confused and inappropriate words? Well, let's say, for example, I ask a patient to tell me what the year is, and they say 1982. Well, you know, it's not 1982, and so confusion is present. And if they answered back saying, yes, mother, well, now they're using inappropriate words, right? Because now they're not even answering the question with an appropriate response. In other words, a year response. Incomprehensible sounds, that means that they grunt or moan or something like that. And then, of course, no response gets you a one. Where we get into trouble, as you know, is when patients are tubed in on a ventilator and we have to do a GCS. Sometimes we really honestly do um, kind of use our best judgment as to where the patient is with best verbal response. So again, they might be using sign language. They might be, you know, can you hold up two fingers or, you know, show me how many fingers I'm holding up in front of you using your fingers, something like that. Um, or if they're nodding their head, yes or no, uh, that's considered a verbal response, if you will, using nursing judgment now in a patient that is tubed because after all, we don't want our intubated patient talking to us now, do we? Anyway, the third component of the GCS is motor response. So the question, of course, that you uh, ask yourself is, does my patient obey commands? So I'm squeezing the patient's hands and, or I'm holding the patient's hands and I'm asking the patient, squeeze my hands. Can the patient squeeze their hands, your hands? Can the patient wiggle their toes based on command? Once the patient squeezes your hand, this is really important, guys, because squeezing of the hand may be purposeful or reflexive. And so if you hold somebody's hands and you say, squeeze my hand, and they squeeze your hands, that is that could be a reflexive response. So to determine that it's purposeful, you say to the patient, okay, release now, release. You can let go of my hand. And when they let go of your hand, that is the purposeful part of this assessment. So if they obey commands, they get a six. If they move to localize pain, in other words, you're pressing down on their nail bed and they take their other hand and push you away, that's localizing pain. Whereas if you're pushing down on the, the nail bed and they withdraw their hand, they are now withdrawing to pain. They get a four for that. If they demonstrate abnormal flexion, flexion of the arm, arms and, uh, plantar flexion of the toes, that's considered decorticate posturing, where basically you've kind of lost the function, whether temporary or permanent, of the higher centers, the cerebral hemispheres, but your brainstem is pretty well still intact. They get a three for that. 
if they adduct their arms, internally rotate their arms, extend them, and then again, plantar flex their toes, it's called abnormal extensor posturing. We then have decerebrate posturing. And now not only do we have problems with the cerebral hemisphere, hemispheres, because there's two, right? Um, there is also problem a problem with the brainstem as well. They get a two for decerebration. And then last but not least, for no response, they get a one. So the highest score you can get is 15. The lowest score you can get is three. We consider to be a severe head injury as a GCS eight or less. Sometimes in the trauma world, we say, if the GCS is less than eight, prepare to intubate. Moderate is considered nine to 12 and mild is considered 13 to 15. So let's take some time now and talk about basilar skull fractures. As I said before, when you look at the base of the skull, you have three fossa. You have the anterior fossa, which obviously faces forward, the middle fossa is in the middle, and the posterior fossa is in the back. So when we talk about an anterior fossa fracture, it usually is somebody that has suffered some sort of head-on type of injury. Might be a head-on type of motor vehicle crash. It might be even an elderly person that has slipped on a scatter rug or maybe skipped over their little tiny ankle biter dog and has fallen forward and has maybe stopped their fall with their face on the coffee table. So it's an anterior type of uh, head trauma. And so <clears throat> we see that patients will develop. They don't present with it because it takes usually three to four hours to develop. <clears throat> the patient presents with raccoon's eyes. Now, on your exam, they're not going to be so informal as to use the term raccoon's eyes. They will use um, the term echomotic periorbital areas. So anyhow, the patient will go on to develop echomotic periorbital areas. Takes about, like I said, three to four hours to develop. And they could actually, from the head-on type of, of injury, have damage to cranial nerve number one. And if you'll remember, cranial nerve number one is the olfactory nerve. And when you have damage to your olfactory nerve, it causes anosmia. Anosmia, the inability to smell. So we can pretty easily assess that, can we not? Because we have a lot of smelly things that we can use in a uh, critical care or step-down setting. We have coffee, we have lemon glycerin swabs, we have alcohol swabs. I mean, those are things that we can test to see if the patient is able or not able to smell. Now, the big thing that you're most likely to get tested on is whether or not the patient has CSF coming out of their nose. And once you have CSF coming out of nose or ears, keep in mind that CSF flows in the subarachnoid area, uh, subarachnoid. So the arachnoid mater is one of the meningeal coverings of the brain. So therefore realize this, that if you have CSF coming out of the nose or CSF coming out of the ears, it must be because you have a meningeal tear, right? 
And we want to know if somebody has CSF coming out of their nose or ears. You're most likely with an anterior fossa fracture, you're most likely to have it coming out of your nose. And so let's use a couple of examples. Let's say, for example, you have a patient that, that has this bloody drainage coming out of their nose. How is it that you would assess that bloody drainage for the presence of CSF? Well, the way that you would do that is you'd have the patient bleed out onto a four by four and you would notice that the CSF separates from the blood. We call that the halo effect, right? Where the CSF separates from the blood and it, it actually makes this halo around the blood itself. So that's if somebody has bloody drainage coming out of their nose. Please do not choose the option that says test it for glucose. Because we know, guys, just by virtue of blood coming out of the nose, if you test blood, it's going to be positive for glucose just by virtue of being blood. Yes? Does that make sense? So we test for the halo effect. If, however, you're reading your story problem and the story problem says that the patient has clear drainage coming out of the nose. Now it's a whole new story. Clear drainage coming out of the nose. You want to assess for CSF by testing for glucose. And so now you're going to test the drainage from glucose and uh, for glucose, and that will identify or differentiate um, just, you know, CSF coming out of the nose from plain old everyday runny nose, boogers coming out of your nose, right? Okay. So now be sure you read your story problem carefully. So you know what they're, they're giving you. Are they giving you somebody with bloody drainage coming out of the nose or somebody with clear drainage coming out of the nose? Next, how are you going to treat that? Well, you'll notice that all the wrong answers want you to stick something up their nose. So your intervention would be A, start nasal cannula oxygen. Well, I don't think so. Do you? I mean, are you going to stick a cannula up their nose? I'm thinking not. Secondly, pack their nose. <coughs> Excuse me. You are not going to be packing their nose. Number three, Inserting an NG tube. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, if you have CSF coming out of the nose, that means you have a meningeal tear, right? You really have no business at that point putting in an NG tube for CSF coming out of the nose as an intervention for that. So what is the answer? The answer is to apply a light mustache dressing, note the drainage and change it PRN. That is the answer. So let's move on to middle fossa fracture, a middle fossa fracture. So when we talk about a middle fossa fracture, we're thinking ears now. And what we want to make sure and do with any head injury is to look in the ears, right? We want to look for a bulging tympanic membrane or hemotympanum where we have a grossly bloody tympanic membrane. And we want to look to see if the tympanic membrane is even intact to begin with. Now, 
Does the patient have hearing loss? We want to assess for that as well. Now, in the same instance, if we have CSF odorrhea coming out of the nose, or excuse me, coming out of the ears versus rhinorrhea coming out of the nose, either way, we're going to look at what the story problem is telling us. So if the story problem says that that odorrhea uh, is uh, clear or bloody, right? Drainage is clear or bloody we're going to intervene appropriately or test it appropriately. If it's blood, we're going to test it for the halo effect. If it is clear, we're going to test it for the presence of glucose. We also note that, and again, it takes about four to six hours to develop, that the patient goes on to develop what's called battles sign, battles sign where they develop an echomotic area behind the ear. Now, keep in mind, this does not have to be bilateral. It's just one side, very commonly. Now, on your exam, they're not probably going to be so informal as to use the term battles sign. They will say that the patient goes on to develop an, um, an echomotic area over the mastoid process. That's how it's typically described. And then also important to assess, you know, go through the cranial nerves and assess for cranial nerve injury. And that's really true, honestly, with any type of head injury. Now, what are we going to do if we have CSF odorrhea? Again, same deal, right? We're not going to pack it. We're not going to suction it. What we're going to do is, is we're going to apply a light dressing, note drainage, and change PRN. Last but not least, we have the posterior fossa. When we talk about a posterior fossa fracture, this person may indeed have an epidural hematoma to go along with it. Again, we would pick that up on CT and also signs and symptoms of increased intracranial pressure. Because think what we have posteriorly. We have the cerebellum, we have the brainstem. So we look at some cranial nerve signs, right? Does the patient have visual impairment, visual changes? What do the pupils look like? Is there facial paralysis? Is the patient communicative? Can they tell you whether they have ringing in their ears? Do they have conjugate or disconjugate eye deviation? Conjugate means that the eyes move together. Disconjugate eye deviation means that the eyes move in separate direction. So keep in mind what's located posteriorly. And by the way, of all of the different types of skull fractures, a posterior fossa fracture is the least common. So our collaborative management for our patients, monitor for increasing ICP. There will be a podcast episode coming up on increased ICP. So we know the earliest sign of increasing ICP is a change in the patient's level of consciousness, correct? Okay, airway, ventilation, oxygenation, that stands to reason. We said no uh, nasopharyngeal airway, um, or nasal suctioning, especially in somebody with an anterior fossa fracture. Head of bed up 30 degrees is always a, a good rule of thumb. We talked about for the anterior fossa fracture, we're going to apply a light mustache dressing. Note the drainage and changes needed. And for a middle fossa fracture, we are going to apply 
the dressing over the ear, note drainage and changes needed. All the while keeping in mind the patient should be monitored for CNS infection, should receive teaching, both the patient and family, you know, once the patient is ready for discharge as to how to identify signs and symptoms of CNS infection. And then also watching the cranial nerves and assessing for cranial nerve injury. So we talked about anosmia. We talked about ringing in the ears, loss of hearing, visual changes, pupillary changes, all very important aspects to monitor. So guys, I, this ends the skull fracture, uh, episode number 26. Again, please head over to my website khoppypresents.com where you will find information on the CCRN online, my available test, which is also online, Mox CCRN, as well as head over to Facebook at Presents in order to get CCRN questions and be sure and sign up for my emails because I send out several emails weekly with CCRN related questions and then I answer them, you know, the the next day or so. So again, you can quiz yourself with those questions as well. I wish you a blessed day and I'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.